And I don't know that many of us ever think it's necessarily true that one or two people or a small group of people can change the world. I now believe it. If you ever think I can't do anything to make the world a better place, you can. We are here today, everybody, with Jim Obergefell. Jim is the named plaintiff from the landmark United States Supreme Court marriage equality case, Obergefell versus Hodges. Following the decision on June 26, 2015, Jim embraced a new career as the LBGTQ plus activist. He is also a speaker as, as in not, not the one of many. <laughs> he is also a speaker on LGBTQ plus equality represented by Kepler speakers. He sits on the board of advisors of the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C., and the National Advisory Council of the GLBT Historical Society. Jim also previously served on the board of directors of SAGE, the oldest and largest national organization that advocates for and provides services for LGBTQ plus older Americans. Merging a love of wine with the fight for equality, Jim co-founded Equality Vines, the world's first cause-based wine label to support organizations devoted to civil rights and equality for all. Jim co-authored the book Love Wins with Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Debbie Senziper. Published by William Morrow, Harper Collins, and he has also written various book forwards, chapters, and afterwards, as well as essays and op-eds. Born and raised in Sandusky, Ohio, Jim now calls Columbus, Ohio home after several years in Washington, D.C. and several decades in Cincinnati, Ohio. Wow, that's um, pretty pretty great. There's a lot there. I'm excited to have you here and, and dig in with you, but um, thank you for joining us. And especially now, you know, with what's going on in the world, it's, it's, it's Pride Month. It's a lot of you know, as I read the kind of civil rights piece of this equality for all, I mean, certainly that is really an important part of what's happening in our world today. Anyway, thanks for having, uh, taking the time to be here, Jim. It's thrilled to be here. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Yeah, good. So, you know, as we mentioned, in as our audience knows, we like to try to hear the full story. And I am, you know, anxious to get into your landmark case, Supreme Court case, and, and, and your, you know, business experience, the 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 activism, you know, there's there's a lot of threads there that are tempting to pull on. But let's let's start kind of at the beginning. I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your early life um, and, and how that maybe started to influence you. But tell me a little bit about kind of how you were raised, your family dynamics, et cetera. Yeah, I was born and raised in Sandusky, Ohio, and I'm the baby of six in a Catholic blue collar family. And my dad was a factory worker. And my mom went back to work when I was in third grade. She took a job at the local library, the public library. And that was, that was heaven for me because I loved to read and I could go see my mom and be in my favorite place in the world. So for me, when I think of my childhood, I always picture books and it was really my mom. She never, I really can Picture mom sitting in the family room without a book in hand. And I, she gave me a, a love of books. So my childhood, you know, it was happy. I think back to those days and it was a great childhood. I loved growing up in Sandusky. I am really close with my family still to this day. And that's actually one of the reasons I moved back to Ohio from Washington, D.C. I wanted to be closer to my family again. I was always the geeky nerdy kid who did well in school. And I discovered a love of singing in seventh grade. And that has been part of my life. Fortunately, not so much over the past few years, but I've always enjoyed singing. Um, but yeah, my childhood was happy. I look back at it and I can't think of anything I would change about it. Yeah. And so that's great, you know, because oftentimes we will focus on kind of the trauma and the challenges and and a lot of, you know, people that, you know, were, you know, when you think about maybe Sandusky, Ohio, um, you know, growing up gay and I don't know kind of where you were in that part, you know, there, there's a kind of a, 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 maybe an itch to jump into, well, it must have been hard 
you know, right? But, but, you know, we do get to hear a lot of stories about loving families and unconditional love and happy childhoods. And, and that's really important to highlight too, because that, that can, you know, you know, be just as big of an influence. I mean, that might sound obvious, but, you know, oftentimes it feels like, well, you, your challenges or your failures make you who you are, but maybe, you know, it's, it's, just happiness and love that makes you who you are too. I think that's a big part of it for me. You know, I I think I was probably around the age of eight when I started to realize that I was different, different being eventually having the courage to say I'm gay. But it was probably around the age of eight or nine. And that's when I started to realize, yeah, I, I think I'm different than other people. But I have to say, you know, in, in my school memories, I don't recall being called nasty names. I don't recall being bullied because other people perceived me to be different. I feel really fortunate in that. And my family, this jumps ahead a few years, but when I, when I came out, the first, my mom had passed away by that point. So I told my dad first, and I was sitting on the front yard or the front porch of my family home with my dad. And I finally spit out, dad, I'm gay. And my dad's response, here he was, a uh, late 60s, blue-collar Catholic man, his response was, Jim, all I've ever wanted is for you to be happy. And I think back to my childhood, Do I, can I pull out specific things where I remember my family saying those things or making a point of always reinforcing that happiness was what was important and love was what was important? No, I don't remember those specific things being said, but I clearly grew up in that environment. I, I was really fortunate and I know so many gay kids so many LGBTQ plus kids can't say the same. Yeah. And I'm just curious. I want to kind of highlight that, you know, I don't know if you've talked to your parents, you know, as time went on about kind of how that was for them to take the approach they did. Was it just like an obvious, like, you're my child, I love you. But, you know, and if that's the case, that's amazing because the conditioning, certainly, you know, growing up in religious backgrounds can often be very different than that. Right. Um, you know, do, do, have they elaborated on kind of how they were able to just access the love despite maybe the conditioning? No, you know, my mom passed away when I was in my first year of university. So one thing I regret is I never knew my mom as my authentic self. Mm -hmm. So I have no way of knowing how she would have reacted. I like to think it would have been much like my dad's response was. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. We love you. Be happy. And after I told my dad, you know, that was that was my coming out. It was that scary time when I'm really worried when I tell people I care about that I'm gay, that they would reject me, that they would be mean, that they would be hateful. So for me, telling my dad that we sat on the, the porch and it wasn't a topic of conversation after that. It was just simply I told him I'm gay. He's like, be happy. And then we just went on with our conversation like nothing had changed because nothing had changed. And it wasn't something that I ever, ever sat down with my dad and talked about in detail. And he passed away, what, 20 years ago. So I missed that opportunity as well. But I really am grateful that his response was the way that it was. And all of my siblings reacted the same way. Yeah. Well, in some ways, you know, it, it's it's like maybe you didn't have the conversation because he handled it just so naturally that right. you didn't really need to, um, you know, get into it much more, right? I mean, maybe that's just, that, that is how it should be. I was just curious because, you know, I know it's often not that way and right. certainly wasn't then. And And just to kind of stick with this for a minute, I'm curious, you know, what was it that kind of, if you started to understand this, you know, eight, nine years old, you know, what was it in between the, those time periods that really had you living into your authentic self or naming it? You know, I, I think things have changed somewhat today. I, I see, you know, my kids' friends that are in middle school and high school coming out, um, you know, much younger. And, and that's wonderful. And I think, you know, maybe to some degree, you've had a role in that. You you might not um, admit that, but it certainly looks like that from from my perspective. But but was it just not the way it was at the time? Or talk a little bit about kind of what was in the way for you to really come out authentically. Yeah, for me, coming out was a process. You know, as as I said, 
eight or nine, I started realizing I was different. High school, I knew even more that I was different, but I wasn't ready to say it to myself, let alone someone else. And I think, you know, I'll go back to family. And this wasn't something my family said to me. It was more just looking at my family. Okay, I have four brothers. They're all married. At that point, most of them had kids. My sister was married with kids. So for me, my image of adulthood, my image of life was, well, I'm going to get married and have kids. That's what a good Catholic boy does. But again, it wasn't anything my family said. It was just the fact of what my family was, what my family looked like. When I got to university, my, my first year, I started creaking open that closet door, but I slammed it shut. And there were, you know, one big thing, I still wasn't ready internally to accept it, but it was also the beginning of the AIDS crisis. And that was incredibly scary because I found myself thinking, oh, if I touch that kid on my floor in, in the residence hall, like I have, or we kiss, I'm going to get AIDS and die. Mm-hmm. And, you know, clearly not true, but that was how it felt. So that was part of what helped keep me in the closet. And then I think another part was once I finished university, I became a high school teacher in Southeastern Indiana. Still today, Public schools aren't necessarily the easiest or the most welcoming places for out teachers. So I think that served to keep me in the closet. And what what really gave me the opportunity to accept it and be happy about it was my grad school experience. I went to grad school in higher education and student affairs at Bowling Green. And it was a program that didn't just accept differences, it celebrated it. And that was where I found a group of people who gave me the ability to say it, to come out loud and say I'm gay and feel good about it. Yeah. Yeah, let, let, that's, that's really great. I want to talk through that kind of part of your journey. Um, but I want to start by talking a little bit about the AIDS crisis because you know, we are in a, a time of, of crisis now where there's civil rights crisis, where there's, you know, the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of kind of information swirling around coming to the surface. You know, I've been kind of learning as much as I can about the race crisis and and the history of our country and the lies that have been told along the way, you know, that have really um, kept Black people from, you know, living the life that they deserve, that other human beings have. And the same, I think, is true for gay people. And um, the AIDS crisis, you know, as you said, there was a lot of misinformation. Let's just talk a little bit about that. Expand on kind of your thoughts of, about that time, certainly in hindsight, and what, what maybe you've learned from it, and maybe how it applies to, to what we're seeing today in other areas. I think there are a few parallels or at least a few things that I I look at and think, oh, I hope this is what comes out of what's happening today. You know, back at that time, if you took, if you looked at gay men and you looked at lesbians, there wasn't a whole lot of community between gay men and lesbians prior to the AIDS crisis. And during the AIDS crisis, if it weren't for, for the lesbian community stepping up and saying, well, no one else is taking care of these men who are dying. We will. That was the beginning of healing the rift between those two communities. Are there still issues? Are there still gay men who don't like women of all sorts? Absolutely. But I look at the community today, and and again, I'm focusing on gay men and lesbians um, with this story. There's a vastly different community between those two groups now than there were. And it's thanks to the AIDS crisis. So that's one of the things, one of the good things that came out of that crisis. And it's one of the things that I hope comes out of what's happening currently. And I think it is because when you look at the protests that are happening across our nation, it isn't just black people. It isn't just people of color. It seems like the light bulb has gone on over the heads of a lot of white people in our nation. And there are a lot of a lot of people, a lot of different people out there protesting and saying, 
racism's wrong. Our country has to deal with it. And we want to be part of helping make that happen. So my hope is that those cross-community communications, those cross-community allyships, I hope that's what we really see coming out of, out of these riots. Because for me, as a, as a gay man, my case, marriage equality, marriage equality, at least my case, wouldn't exist if it weren't for Mildred Loving. And a lot of, if not all of the arguments used against marriage equality were used against interracial marriage. So we have to realize that we're not only fighting for ourselves, we're fighting for every other minority. And that's what I want to, that's what I hope comes out of this. Yeah, I agree. I, I love where this is headed because I think you're right on. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. I want to come back to it though. And I certainly want to come back to your case. Let's talk a little bit about what you highlighted as far as your experience in public school and then your experience in grad school. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really interested in both, especially were you teaching public school in Ohio? No, Southeastern Indiana. Oh, Southeastern. Okay. So Cincinnati. Yeah. And and what I'm kind of curious about is, you know, these kind of Midwestern cities, um, you know, Ohio, Indiana, you know, it's not San Francisco, right? right? I mean, Columbus always had a reputation of being a little bit more open and friendly, but, you know, I don't know what it was like in Southeast Indiana. And I'm a little bit um, surprised or interested to hear, you know, that, that it was so open and accepting at Bowling Green. Can you just elaborate a little bit on both those experiences? Absolutely. You know, I think back to when I was teaching high school. And again, this is one of those things where it wasn't things that I heard specifically or saw happen. It was more of kind of the the nation at that point, because this was the this was the early 90s. And I still wasn't out. I was closeted. And for me, realizing down deep, yeah, I am gay, but here I am in this role as a teacher. So much of our society thinks that gay people, queer people are out there recruiting, training, trying to turn kids queer. And we know how laughably false that is, but I knew that was kind of the, the, net, the national, the national environment. And I liked teaching. I needed a job. I wanted that job. And for me, it just was part of survival to make sure that I stayed in the closet because I just had this image of, oh, if I came out or someone somehow in the school district found out that I'm a closeted gay man, well, there goes my job. And that was a very real fear. I mean, that was happening. So I firmly kept myself in the closet. Well, <laughs> probably not that firmly. I think most people could knew. Most people probably assumed. But I had to make sure that that never became part of my public, my professional persona because I, I don't want to lose my job. My graduate program, you know, again, it was higher education and student affairs. So think about directors of student activities, the people who run residence halls, campus life. That's what this program was all about. And as we've seen, universities are, are typically the place of support and welcoming for the LGBTQ plus community of, of minorities in general. And this program very much embraced that spirit. It was all about making sure the students you were responsible for, the students you were helping, felt supported, comfortable, and safe in their college environment. Well, that also created that environment within our program. And it wasn't something that I planned to do, but it was really being in the backseat of a car on a weekend road trip with two of my, my classmates when the woman driving just said to Matt and me, are you guys gay or straight? And it was one of those out of the blue direct questions, which I'd never received. And Matt answered first, and I'm in the backseat freaking out. Well, how am I going to answer this? Am I going to continue to lie? Or am I going to finally admit it? And I surprised myself by saying gay. Mm. But it was because I was in a program where 
that was okay. Mm-hmm. Be you, be authentic. So I, I really do credit that program for helping me learn to love myself and to come out. Yeah, that's wonderful. Amazing, really. Um, and what year was that? I'm just curious to kind of put a timeline together between that. Let's and see. That was the summer of 92. Okay. It was 26. And so then did you go on continuing in, in education at, with your career? Um, no, because I <laughs> fell in love. <laughs> I So that was the summer of 92. And I had met John once before coming out because we had a mutual friend in common. And we had met at a bar in Cincinnati near the campus of the University of Cincinnati called Uncle Woody's. And Kevin, the friend, and I walked into Uncle Woody's and there was his friend John sitting at the bar drinking a gin and tonic. And I was still fully closeted. And John scared the daylights out of me because he was so comfortable in his own skin, who he was. Mm. And I thought for certain he was going to see right through me and just call me out on being closeted. He didn't. So that was the first time I met him. Then I came out. I was back in Cincinnati not long after that, out with that same friend, Kevin. We went back to Uncle Woody's and guess who was at the bar yet again? John. Well, this time I was out and baby gay, very much a baby gay at that point. And John made some comment along the lines of, well, you'd never go out with someone like me. And I have no clue where I had the wit or even the courage to say what I said, but I responded, how do you know you've never asked? And he didn't. So a couple months later, I was back in Cincinnati for the holidays. By this point, our mutual friend Kevin was one of John's housemates, and he invited me to their house, John's house, for a New Year's Eve party. And I went to that party, and I like to say I never left. That's wonderful. And yeah, John became John and I became a couple then. So, you know, I fell in love with John. And at the end of that year of my program, so that that spring into summer, I just, I made the decision. I liked the program, but I wasn't sure it was necessarily the best fit for me. And I'd also fallen in love and I wanted to start a life together with John. So I moved back to Cincinnati, did not finish my master's degree. And we did just that. We ended up buying a house and started our 21-year relationship. Wonderful. Wonderful. And so let's talk about that relationship. Um, You know, obviously that relationship propels you into the case, um, but, you know, that's 20 years later, right? 21 years later. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about kind of um, the journey together as a couple And, you know, then, you know, ultimately how that leads you to the case. So John and I, you know, it was one of those things I I won't necessarily say it was love at first sight. We like to joke and say it was love at third sight because we met once, we met a second time, we met a third time at that New Year's Eve party. So we like to say it was love at third sight. But I knew right from the start that, yeah, I, I want a relationship with John, I, I see good things coming out of this. And he tried to talk me out of, it, out of it because he said, Jim, I've dated a lot of men. Rarely has it ended well. And I said, I don't care. I, I want to give this a try. So I convinced him. And we just very, very quickly became Jim and John, John and Jim, and built a great circle of friends who loved us, treated us no differently than any of their opposite sex friends. Our families were incredible. John always liked to say that his mom loved me more than she loved him. I think he was right. (laughs) And I like to say my family loved John more than they loved me because John was incredibly charming, witty person. And he, he had this ability with the English language, like few people I've ever known. His brother's another one. They, they just could put together a sentence, a phrase beautifully. I mean, in ways I could never imagine. And his wit was so funny. I, I really remember the many times he, he would say something to someone and it would sound so nice and lovely. 
about 10 minutes later, they'd realize, wait, John, that was actually kind of mean. He, he just, he, it was always done in, in, you know, in jest and in good humor and good spirits, but he just had this way of putting words together that I sorely miss. John also liked to say he was lazy. So he loved that I like to cook. I would do all the cooking. And I tried from the start to say, well, if I do all the cooking, you do the dishes. That never worked out. <laughs> John was the, the ideas guy. John loved to dream. He was a dreamer in every way possible. And he was honestly saying he wasn't happy with isn't the right way to phrase it. But our homes, he was always looking for ways to change them, update them. He was never happy, just, you know, put a room together and leave it that way. Nope, we were always changing things. And I also credit John with instilling me and instilling in me a love of art. One of the first gifts he gave me was a piece of original art. And that became a thing throughout our years together. We bought so much art. It was almost all Cincinnati focused art because that's where we lived and we loved the city of Cincinnati. But we just, we just lived our lives. We, supported things we cared about. We, we were never activists ever other than writing checks. We were involved in the community. We were both on neighborhood councils. We just really had a good life together. And almost from the start, we talked about marriage. And it was something we wanted to do. We wanted to get married. And in fact, in, I think it was what, 94, 93, 94, when there was the possibility same-sex marriage would become legal in Hawaii. John's stepmother at the time said, well, if that happens, I'm flying everybody to Hawaii so you guys can get married. Well, that didn't happen. And then the more we talked about it, we realized, yeah, we want to get married. We want our relationship to matter, but we're not going to do it if it's only symbolic. So we agreed we're not going to get married unless the government, whether that's state or federal, recognize us. So we just, we, we made the best of it. and a life together, a really happy life, traveled a lot, art, you name it. Yeah, it's wonderful. And, and yeah, interesting that, you know, you weren't an activist. You don't describe yourself as an activist. There's clearly an issue that, you know, is, is uh, making it unfair for you to have the life that you should and that others have in, in kind of this legal commitments, right? I mean, you're living like a married couple, but you're not allowed to legally be married. You recognize that. And it just wasn't something that that felt like, tell me, you know, did it did not feel like you you had the power to change it, that you could. It just wasn't who you were, you know, what was behind the not being active and knowing, you know, that eventually you, you know, become so activated. Yeah, I, I think the reason John and I weren't activists. It's just who we were. You know, we, we were, we liked to write checks to organizations and causes we cared about, but maybe it was we, in our families, we, we didn't have an example of being active, doing things of that sort, but it was really just the way we were. And I think, you know, being gay men in some ways, and it's, it's sad to it's sad to think this. We just thought, well, things aren't going to change. We're just going to make the best of it. And that's sad to feel that way, but I think that might have been part of it as well. And activism didn't become a thing for us until we found ourselves in such a specific, unique situation that we had a decision to make. Do we finally do something? Do we finally say enough is enough and fight for something that meant that was important to us, something that meant something to us? And that's what happened. And it was yeah. also a situation we could have never dreamt of or planned for. Yeah, well, I ask because, you know, it's an, it's an interesting little like nuance that I think maybe we all deal with where, you know, you're seeing people now activate uh, around race um, that 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 were not before, um, and maybe it was for similar reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it does take an event to really, really get you activated. 
you know, it would be nice if that wasn't the case, you know, and maybe that's like a thing we we can learn from that when we we have these feelings, when we have these um, you know, kind of understandings that something's not right, that we we have to get active before, you know, it becomes abundantly obvious. I mean, I'm learning that in my own life and and wanting to really, you know, step into how we can be more active because we we can get lulled into well we're we're doing a good job you know yeah yeah it is um, even if you're if you're like a little bit active you know yeah. you can get kind of complacent right there and so so tell me about kind of getting active you know tell me let's talk about how you really start to um, lean into this case I think for us it was also one of those things where. I think a lot of people feel this way. I'm one person, we're two people. What effect could we possibly have? What could we possibly do that's going to change things? And I think that's one of the things that we that people are starting to realize. As you say, current day, people are realizing, no, I can't actually be part of this, part of making things better, or at least hoping, fighting to make things better. So for us, our our my descent, our descent into Activism, as I, as I like to say, I'm now a professional gay, <laughs> came about because of Edie Windsor. June 26, 2013, in her case, United States versus Windsor, she won and the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. That was one really important thing because that was the first moment in our lives where the possibility of marriage being recognized, being seen, being respected by the government was. A real thing. Now, the other thing that we could have never planned for and still wish we didn't have to go through was John's diagnosis with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. He was diagnosed in 2011. And by June 26, 2013, he was completely bedridden. I was his full-time caregiver. Hospice nurses would, would visit three times a week for an hour or two, but I was taking care of the man I loved, the man I promised to do. This was before we got married, but we had still made those promises. You know, We would love each other, care for each other, no matter what happened. And I was his caregiver as he was dying a little bit every single day with ALS. So June 26, 2013, he's lying in his bed. We're watching TV when the Windsor decision came out and when it clicked that, oh, the federal government would now have to recognize us if we got married. I spontaneously leaned over, hugged him and kissed him and said, let's get married. And luckily he said yes. But the really frustrating thing was here we were in Cincinnati, six blocks from our county courthouse. And I couldn't put him in his wheelchair and go six blocks to get a, to get a marriage license because Ohio had their own version of the Defense of Marriage Act. So we had to figure out where do we go to get married? And I started researching the states where we could go and eventually settled on Maryland for one really important reason. It was the only state that didn't require both people to appear in person to apply for a marriage license. So I could go in advance, get the marriage license, come home, meaning that John's discomfort, John's pain traveling would be limited solely to going to Maryland to get married and coming right back home. So through the generosity of our family and friends, they funded the entire $14,000 cost of a chartered medical jet. Because there was no way I was going to put him in an ambulance and we couldn't fly commercially. So we went in a chartered medical jet, along with John's Aunt Paulette, Aunt Tootie. She had told us years before that she, in her opinion, we represented marriage more than any married couple she had ever known. And if we ever had the opportunity to get married, she wanted to be the one to do it. So she went online and clicked the ordain me button. And after I proposed to John, this was years before we got married. So after I proposed to John, first thing I did was reach out to Aunt Tootie to say, hey, does that offer still stand? So she went with us to Maryland and we landed at BWI airport where we parked on the tarmac, never left the airplane. Hmm. And we said, I do. I think. Wow. And to say it was the happiest moment of my life isn't a lie. It's, it's, I'm not overstating things. It was a wonderful thing to finally be able to say that mm. and to make our promises, our relationship public and legal. 
And because one of our friends was on the, the editorial board of the Cincinnati Inquirer, when, when she found out we were going to get married, she asked if she could write an article about us. So, okay. We didn't see any reason to say no. So at our, in the airplane with us was a videographer from the newspaper who flew commercially and met us. He videotaped it. She wrote the story. We got married on a Thursday. And that story came out online on Saturday. It was in the print edition on Sunday. And we just got married. That was all we wanted to do. We had no plans, no thought, no dream of ever doing what happened next. And what happened next was friends being at a party, running into their friend who's a civil rights attorney, Al Garhardstein. He's been fighting for civil rights for more than 40 years in Cincinnati. They talked about us. He left the party, ditching his wife there, went back to the office and started doing some research. And then through our friends, he, he said, hey, guys, I, I would love to just come have a conversation. Would you be up for that? So he came to our home five days after we got married and he pulled out a blank Ohio death certificate. And when he said, do you guys... Get it. Do, do you understand that when John dies, his last official record as a person will be wrong? Because Ohio will say he's unmarried. Jim, your name, name won't be there as his surviving spouse. As you can imagine, that broke our hearts because we had just jumped through all of these hoops to get married, something millions of people do without any issues. We had to jump through all these hoops. It broke our hearts, but I think more importantly, it made us angry. So when, when Al asked if we wanted to do something about it, John and I talked about it. And John said, Jim, yeah, I think we should. But remember, this is all on you. I can't do anything. Because he was completely bedridden. So we told Al, okay, let's do something. Because we found ourselves in a situation where something we had never thought of hit us in the face, this lack of respect, this lack of dignity, this this harm the state was, would, would do to us, to our relationship, because of the state-level Defense of Marriage Act. So we filed suit against the state of Ohio and the city of Cincinnati in federal district court. And, and did, did John have a sense that, that you know, this was going to be part of his legacy, that this would be something that would really make a difference, that his life in, in some way would have new meaning? Um, did you guys talk about that? We, we didn't talk about that, but I'm pretty confident he did. Because John, he always wanted to leave something of a legacy. I mean, he always had these grand dreams of being able to buy blocks of abandoned homes and rehabbing them and making it a neighborhood again. He wanted to do something good for Cincinnati. He, that was always one of his dreams. So it isn't hard for me to think he realized, oh, this might actually be something that affects a lot of people positively. And it's really the last thing I can do. And yeah, maybe it'll be a legacy for me. But I also, I'm also convinced that he saw it, saw it as his way of living up to his promises to me because he knew by saying, yes, let's do this. He knew I would be taken away from him at times as he was nearing the end of his life. But he was willing to do that because for him, it meant we were fighting for each other. We were fighting for our marriage. We were fighting for others, but it was also his ability to say, yeah, I'm going to give up something here. Time with Jim so that he can go to court, he can do interviews, all of the things that would potentially happen. It's like, I'm willing to give that up because that's how I live up to my promises to love mm-hmm. honor and respect Jim. Mm. Beautiful. So selfless. Um, tell me a little bit about what it was like for you to be in this now. I mean, this year we're, we're in the, I believe this year is the fifth anniversary of the decision. Um, tell me about kind of how this goes for you. You know, my, my, life, my life has changed completely 
from what it was, you know, never having any desire to be a public person. I liked being an anonymous person. I liked that, but I never had any desire to be a face or name that people recognized. But as the case became bigger and bigger, and as we got to the Supreme Court and just that realization that, wow, this, this is huge. You know, when we started, we were so focused on each other because that's what my life was at that point was John, taking care of John. Our, our life revolved around being in that same room together where his hospital bed was. That was our life. And it, I was so focused there. But as the case kept going, it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And just that realization, oh, this, this really has the ability to change life for a lot of people. And that's what I've experienced since the decision. I mean, even before the decision, just how people would stop me and share photos of their loved one or pictures of their wedding, talk about the various anniversaries they have. You know, they met, they got a civil union, they got married in California, but then it didn't exist anymore and all of those things. And for me, one of the most meaningful things I've experienced since is young people coming up to me after I speak somewhere and coming out to me and for the first time to themselves. I had a, a student at American University come up to me and say, Jim, I've never told this to anyone, not even myself, but I'm like you, I like boys. And to have those experiences where you, you're realizing, ooh, yeah, this really has made a huge impact, very personal impact on people across the nation. That's my favorite thing. You know, yeah, yeah I get recognized, but it's okay. It's always a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're starting to wind back to something I want to talk to you about, which is this, you know, idea of kind of really being humans and having a human experience and all being the same and maybe unique, but one. And, you know, my opinion, you know, that, that that's the that's the goal. That's, you know, why we're here. Um, and I want to talk to you about that, but I, I don't want to just kind of skip um to the end. You know, tell me what was the what was the greatest challenge, the opposition, the struggle in getting to the the ultimate decision you know, of the case. Tell me in, in, within the case, where was where was this tough? Where was this hard? Tell me a little bit about that. You know, our case, you know, the, the heart of our case was this. The state of Ohio was creating different classes of people because an underage couple or first cousins who were able to legally marry in another state, as soon as they crossed the border into Ohio, Ohio automatically recognized their marriages, even if they were marriages that could not take place in Ohio. So that was the heart of our case. We said, Ohio, you're creating separate classes of people. That's unconstitutional. If you're going to recognize an out-of-state marriage between first cousins, you should also recognize an out-of-state marriage that was legal in that state between two people of the same sex. So that was the heart of our case. And for me, I think the hardest thing always was just hearing, not so much Ohio, when we became consolidated with Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan cases, I think for me, the hardest thing was hearing these other states argue that, you know, in general, well, if we, if we allow two people of the same sex to get married, it's going to devalue and destabilize the marriages of opposite sex couples. Number one, why? How on earth could my marriage to John impact someone else's marriage? Regardless of what that marriage is, if it does, then there's a problem in that marriage and it's not John's and my marriage. So it was hard to hear that, but also just kind of the, the negative images of, of the LGBTQ plus community that were inherent in so many of those arguments that were, were evil, that were less than, that were unfit to be parents. All of those just hateful, illogical arguments against our rights to get married. That, that's what hurt. For me, the, the absolute low point in the whole, the whole 
um, experience. You know, it was almost two years from when we filed our suit to the Supreme Court decision. The absolute low point was when the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against us. Mm-hmm. That was the low point. The bit of joy that I got out of that and the bright point in that ruling was the dissent by Judge Martha Daughtry. She was one of the first women to attend Vanderbilt Law School. So she has been through, she has experienced discrimination and her dissent was blistering against the other two judges on that three-judge panel. It was, it was fantastic. So that, that made me happy to read that. But it was also, even though it was the low point, you know, it was that point, oh, do I want to keep fighting this? Do I want to keep going? The answer was always unequivocally yes, because I had to keep fighting for John. But the, the silver lining to that loss in the Sixth Circuit was, well, maybe now the Supreme Court will take it because it was the first, at that point, so many other courts had ruled in favor of marriage equality. Sixth Circuit was the first to rule against. So the silver lining was, well, maybe now with a split in circuit courts, they'll take it. And the Supreme Court did. So even though that was the low point, something really good came out of that. And honestly, going into the Supreme Court, I mean, from the start, I I always thought, we're winning. There's no possible way they can rule against us because we're on the right side. Mm. And I, I stuck to that all the time. And I mean, clearly the absolute worst moment in those years was when John died. Three months to the day after we won our first hearing in federal court in Cincinnati. That was rough. Yeah. So now you're mourning and, and you know, dealing with, with his loss and fighting this fight at the same time. And, and I'm just really moved by your strength to just, you know, follow that you knew what was right and that, that you could see this through to a win um, despite being uh, grieving and, and having opposition, you know, it's really moving. And I just want to thank you for, for being who you are, you know, and, 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 and so let's talk about the, the win. Let's talk about, I know you're, you're not somebody that was used to being in the Supreme Court, right? <laughs> not used to being an activist, not used to being a public figure. And, and now you win. What was that like? Talk okay. about the win because people need to know, you know, that it's worth it. And, and what that feeling is like. Oh, June 26, 2015. It's, it's difficult to put into words how joyous that day was. You know, I was going back to D.C. for every decision day starting the beginning of June because I needed to be there in that courtroom to hear their decision. So, you know, I was there June 8th, June 15th, June 22nd. And on June 22nd, after we left court, we were out front and someone came running out. Well, they just added Thursday, June 25th as a decision day. Then someone else came running out. They just added Friday, June 26th as decision day. Now, up to that point, we all thought, well, the decision is going to come on Monday, June 29th, because they only officially schedule on Mondays. But when they said June 26th, we, look, we all looked at each other and we started to smile because we thought, hmm, June 26th, that's a really important day for the LGBTQ plus community and the Supreme Court. Lawrence versus Texas, which struck down anti-sodomy laws, was decided on June 26th. United States versus Windsor, which struck down DOMA, was decided on June 26th. So we suddenly were really hopeful. We're like, well, we think it's going to be Friday. So Friday morning, I get there and I'm in line on the sidewalk to be in the courtroom. And, you know, the whole atmosphere was just, we're winning today. Today's a good day. We're, We're happy to be here. You know, I think in the back of our minds, we all were still, let's not be too confident because you never know. But then the the police officer who hands out the tickets for the courtroom walked down our line handing out those tickets. And that happened every time I was in the Supreme Court. That day, June 26, he handed out the tickets and we were all just chatting away. And I looked down and I noticed, well, there's something different about the ticket today than every other time. Every other time I'd been in the courtroom for oral arguments, for decisions, those tickets were bright orange. Well, on Friday, June 26, it wasn't bright orange. That ticket was lavender. Now we were already thinking, yeah, this is going to be a good day. 
Well, how could we not see that as a positive sign? So we get into the courtroom, court comes to session. The, Supreme, the Chief Justice said, Justice Kennedy will read the first decision. And everybody had said, if Kennedy's reading a decision, listen up because chances are good. It might be yours, might be Obergefell v. Hodges. So I'm sitting between friends holding their hands and he starts to read the decision. And my initial reaction was, we won. And Justice Kennedy kept reading and not being an attorney and not having had a whole lot of experience reading decisions. I found myself questioning whether or not we won. I thought, well, did we? I'm not so sure now. But as he kept reading and it became clear that we won, I burst into tears. And you could hear and see people around the courtroom. They, there were so many people in that courtroom crying and sobbing. And Al, our attorney, was there. He was closer to the bench. And he told me later, he said, Jim, I have never seen so many attorneys crying in a courtroom. And needless to say, or not surprisingly, I should phrase it, first thing I thought was, John, I wish you were here. I wish you could be in this courtroom to know we exist, to know we matter. And then that was closely followed by the realization that for the first time in my life as an out gay man, I felt equal. Mm -hmm. So then had to listen to the dissents on our on our decision, which I merely ignored because I didn't care. We won. You can talk all you want. I'm not paying attention. <laughs> and then there were more decisions that, that they released. So I'm sitting there thinking, come on, let us go. Let us go. Let us go. Because in my mind, I'm picturing Edie Windsor on the steps of the Supreme Court. I'm picturing, you know, those, whether or not they're accurate, I had this image of always the winners coming down the steps. And that's what I wanted to do. And I knew there was a party happening out front because I knew the word had gotten out. And I just wanted to go. So court finally came to an end. We gathered outside the courtroom, attorneys, plaintiffs, and we were stopped from walking out the front door and down the steps. And the officer who stopped us said, nope, you can't go that way. You have to exit the side. And I'm having this internal crybaby moment. What do you mean we can't exit that way? I want to go down those steps. But we had to exit the side because the crowd on the plaza had pushed past the barricades, and they were up on the steps of the courthouse. So they didn't want us to go exit that way, purely for safety's, safety reasons. So we exited the courthouse on the side, stepped up onto the plaza, and I, I'm not a religious person in any way, shape, or form, but to me, it felt like Moses parting the Red Sea. Because as soon as the crowd saw us and realized who we were, Al and I were arm in arm, other plaintiffs and attorneys were behind us. As soon as the crowd realized who we were, it just split before us. And people were crying, they were singing, they were cheering, giving us high fives. The air was electric. And you know, that's a phrase a lot of us are, from, are familiar with. Well, I got to live it that day because that perfectly describes it. The air was electric. And we made our way through the crowd down to the, the press scrum where we could make our statements. So I, I read my statement to the press and then I turned around, had an interview with CNN and I finished that interview with CNN and someone handed me a phone to say, you have, phone, you have a phone call, Jim. I think I know who that calls from, but don't, yes. I won't spoil it. Tell us. <laughs> so here I am with mobile phone on speaker in the midst of this celebratory crowd, having a conversation with President Obama. You know, in the back of my mind, and I think somebody had even said, Jim, just be prepared. You might get a phone call from someone important that day. It still was an amazing surprise. And, you know, to, to have a conversation with President Obama, who, I mean, just talking with the president to begin with, but a president who had been such a proponent of LGBTQ plus equality was amazing. And I had this conversation with him and hung up. And then I had interview, interview, loads of interviews. And the first, almost the first question that every single person asked me was, well, Jim, we saw you got a phone call. Who was it? What was the president? What did he say? And I had to look at them and, and say, honestly, I have no idea. It passed in a blur. I had the vague recollection that he said something like, Thank you, Jim. You and your husband helped make the world a better place today. 
that was it. I couldn't remember anything else. Mm -hmm. And I was so thankful that I got that phone call right after finishing with the CNN interview because that CNN crew got it all on video. Mm. And a couple of days later, the White House released a, a video, it's split screen. The president is sitting in the Oval Office on one side. I'm in front of the Supreme Court on the other. And they played our conversation. And boy, was I happy. I was able to watch that because I breathed an enormous sigh of relief because I honestly had no idea if I had formed complete sentences. <laughs> I didn't know if I sounded like an idiot. I had no mm. idea if I'd been respectful. <laughs> Whew. It made me better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, I mean, it, it does say a little bit about kind of the, I don't know, high or or jubilation or whatever you want to call it, the out-of-body experience that you were <laughs> having in this in this moment that, you know, it's hard to even recall a conversation with the president and, and thank God that you you had it on tape and um and you know can can really soak it all in. I I am you know, um, tearing up as I'm hearing the story, the energy you can still feel. I can visualize um, you, you know, in that courtroom with the tears walking out, you know, the seas parting, you know, the <laughs> CNN, the president. I mean, this is it. This is, this is why you did it. it and, and, and it wasn't about that moment. It's about what it meant for so many human beings to now be able to be, I'm going to say more equal, right? Because as, as we know, you know, the, the, the opposition, the hate, it still exists and the work is, is really not done ever. And, and I know you continue to go on to be um, an activist in a lot of ways, but, but I want to come back now to this thing that we've touched on, which is really, this idea of us all really, really living, you know, someday as one, you know, with what's going on in the world, with this being pride, with with the race um, a crisis, you know, with the the divides that are in this country, what 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 do you believe we have to do so that we can get to? this place where we are truly one, where we, we are truly accepted for our differences. Um, you know, is that too much to hope for? Is that too much to even ask of you? Or, or, or you know, what, what do you think are the kind of the best, you know, baby steps, if that's what the right thing to do is? Um, love to hear your opinion on that. You know, this is such a big question, such a big topic. Will we ever get to the point where our nation really lives up to those ideals we trot out, those ideals we inscribe in our buildings, equal justice under law, all men, people are created equal, all, um, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. We, the people, I mean, it's a huge question. Will we get to that point? We take baby steps and then there are steps back. We take baby steps, then there are steps back. I mean, we've experienced that even with marriage equality and with LGBTQ plus equality. But right now, our nation is, I hope, finally reckoning with or taking the steps necessary to reckon with our racist past, the fact that our country is built on stolen land and it was built primarily by people of color, by black people. You know, this is this is something we have to we have to deal with in our nation. And for me, I think it comes down to individually, whatever, whatever community you, you identify with, whatever community you're, you're part of, I think it's the, the, that internal individual realization that equality for one means absolutely nothing without equality for all. And I think what we're seeing, what I, what I see currently is that there are so many different minority groups who are out on the streets now, and not just minority groups, white people. People, people, I think, are suddenly or finally realizing that we have to fight for each other. And I always bring that back to the LGBTQ plus community. You know, there's racism within our community. I mean, there are people in our community, 
There are gay men who don't like lesbians. There are people in our community who say, well, nobody's really bisexual. They just haven't admitted that they're gay. That's all discrimination. That's all wrong. And I can't ask for equality for me as a gay man if I'm not demanding equality for everyone within my community and everyone, everyone in other minority communities. And my hope, my hope is that that reality, that truth is starting to become more widely held. We have to fight for each other. And I really just come, I, for me, I keep coming back to the fact that my equality means nothing if the person next to me doesn't also enjoy equality. So, oh, I hope we get there. Yeah, but I, I me don't. Me too. It's a long. Whatever. It, whenever it happens, if it happens, it's a. It's a. It's a ways away. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about um, speaking of equality, uh, equality vines, and uh, how you're using wine to help fight these fights. Yeah. So equality vines we founded five years ago, and my co-founder. He had been in the wine business for years, and his favorite aunt back in the 70s worked for NBC in New York. And after one too many instances of being told to get coffee for a man or just being treated less than in the workplace, she decided she'd had enough and she filed and led the first major class action lawsuit for gender equality and pay equality in the workplace. And she won. Matt. Her, her nephew was thinking, I want to do something. I want to do a wine to honor her, to honor Aunt Marilyn. And one of his friends said, Matt, think bigger than one wine. And then our story hit the news. And he realized his ex-wife and I have a friend in common. So he called me out of the blue one day and said, introduced himself and said, let's have dinner. I have some ideas. Let's talk. So we met in New York and had dinner. Yes, over many bottles of wine. And Equality Vines was born. And we, we, we call ourselves a cause-based wine label because every wine we release is tied to an organization fighting for equality. And when we sell a bottle of that wine, we make a donation to that organization. And then we also do other um, donations, support outside of the per bottle one, but each bottle is tied to an organization fighting for equality. We have wines that support LGBTQ rights. Our very first wine, Love Wins Cuvée, celebrates marriage equality. And we have other wines in our LGBTQ line of wines that support organizations such as SAGE, um, the Mattachine Society, LGBTQ Connections, which is out in Sonoma County, um, face-to-face out in Sonoma and Napa as well. We've supported HRC, so many others in the, the LGBTQ world. And then we have our line of women's rights wines and those support the League of Women Voters, the YWCA, and others that we've supported. And this July, we'll be bottling our first wine in our immigrants' rights line of wines. So for us, it comes down to putting really good wine in a bottle, but having a story that goes with that wine and supporting an organization that's out there doing good work, fighting for equality for all. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, um, go to uh, qualityvines.com. People should check it out. Um, you know, I love it. If you if you look, you know, the names are great. The 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 two the decision Pinot Noir. You know, the uh, the the amendment Sauvignon Blanc. Nineteenth you know, amendment. Yep. Yep, I love how you're how you're you're doing this. And what I'd love to do is have you come to Gravity when things open up here in Columbus and and do a little um, talk and and uh, tasting and um, let's to. let's celebrate what you're doing, uh, Jim. Any kind of final thoughts or anything else that you want to share as we wrap up with the audience? I'm so uh, grateful to have the opportunity to hear your story today, and just want to. Thank you uh, for the work that you've done and continue to do and the life you've lived. It's exactly the kind of example that the world needs to hear more of, and I'm sure will continue to inspire many. So thank you for being here, but I'll let you uh, have the final word. Thanks. Well, I really appreciate that. You know, I'll, I'll end with this. You know, 
when I look back at my experience in this, I tie it to something we all hear as kids. It's kind of one of those things that's just part of our culture. We say this, and I don't know that many of us ever think it's necessarily true that one or two people or a small group of people can change the world. I now believe it because I've lived it. I was part of that. And if you ever think I can't do anything to make the world a better place, you can. Whether that's being out on the street right now in support of the Black community and people of color, whether that's calling your elected officials to say, this is an issue that's important to me, please support it, or please do not do this because this is harmful to others. And vote. Voting is the most important power we have as American citizens to have a country that looks like us or to have representation that looks like us and to have a country that actually lives up to the ideals we claim to hold dear. So voting, that's one of the most powerful things you can do. Vote, vote, vote. And if you've ever thought about it, run for office. Good. That's um, a great way to wrap up. I mean, I, I really love it. The idea that we really have the ability and the power to change the world. And as you said, you know, when you when you know something's right, that that you you, you gotta you gotta lean in because you can change the world. You've done that. And, you know, as a as a kid growing up in Sandusky, Ohio, you know, I mean, it's, it's often, you know, it's often really, even when you hear people say it, when you hear the examples, there's all the reasons why, why it, it can't be us, but, but, but those aren't true. It can be anyone, individual, any group around the right thing um, can really change the world. Right. So... Jim, thanks again. It's really an honor to have you here and um, I appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.